reading is from Luke 15, starting at chapter 11. Verse 11, sorry. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to his citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son... The father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray together that God would have 
something to say into each of our lives this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this story that you told, which I guess is very familiar to most of us. And we pray that even today you'd have something to say for each one of us to receive that would change our lives and bring us closer to you. So please take the thoughts and the words I prepared and make them useful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the middle of a sermon series looking at different parables that Jesus told. And this is the second installment looking at this story you just had read to you, known, isn't it, as the prodigal son. Now, I wonder if many of us, I suspect it's true for many of us, have had the experience that you've used your phone or a modern digital camera to take a picture, and it's one of those gadgets with a very useful feature called autofocus. So you confidently take a snap, and then later on in the day, you might get it on your computer, or you actually look at what you've taken, and you see a beautifully focused hedge with a smudge in front called the grandchildren or something like that, because the focus is on the wrong place. And and the same can actually happen with stories too and incidents too. I I remember hearing about uh, somebody who was brave enough to be a spokesperson for the Temperance Society. And week by week they went into different schools and took a school assembly. And um, I can't remember now if it was a man or a woman, it doesn't really matter much. Uh, And they had a party trick and they got quite confident with it. And the way they would begin the assembly standing in front of these children, they would bring in two very large capacious bags and they would set up a table on the left and a table on the right and they put a jug on each table and into one they would pour some water and into the other one they would pour some beer and then they'd be talking like I'm talking to you and they'd be giving a little chat and a bit later on they would go back into the bag and bring out a large jar and in there were lots of very wiggly worms and they would walk over to the water and they would throw some worms into that jug and they'd walk over to the beer and they'd throw some worms into that jug and they'd carry on talking for about five or six minutes and then at the end of their temperance talk they would look at the children and then they'd pick up the two jugs and they'd say oh look and and in the jug with the water would be all the worms wiggling around very happily and then juggling the beer the worms would be dead on the bottom and they'd say what do we learn from that children an awful moment of suspense and on one occasion a child shouted out from the back well you learn if you don't want worms drink beer (laughs) well you know it was not that wasn't the point that wasn't the point and if we're not careful we can do something very similar to this story uh, that is so familiar to us known as the prodigal son and as we hinted at last week Actually, even the title we give to this talk is encouraging us to focus in the wrong place. It's it's actually putting our autofocus out of joint because this isn't the story of a prodigal son. This is a story of at least two sons and a father. So, So we need to realign where our focus goes. And, and I think the one thing we could say about the older son and where he is hard done by is he has been unfairly treated by posterity 
He's been overlooked. Well, I've given him a name for the purposes of this morning. I'm going to call him Eddie the Elder. And uh, Eddie, this is your moment. You can come out from behind being overshadowed by your brat of a brother, and the spotlight is going on you today. You are a key player. And we should ask ourselves, and I hope to be able to help us with this, what's going on in this story? Why does Jesus even include an elder son in this story? And is the elder son's behavior reasonable or reprehensible? As someone mentioned to me on the way out of church last week, they said they're looking forward to this week because doesn't the elder son have a point? Isn't it fair for him to ask, what's this wastrel tearaway, we might call him useless Eustace, done to deserve a party, eh? Should we sympathize with the older son or should we steer clear with him? Now, I'm not going to rehash, you can be relieved to know, I'm not going to rehash uh, last week's talk all over again. But to get the older son in perspective, we do just need to remind ourselves of at least a story so far, a very brief recap. So what happened last week, what happens earlier before we encounter the older son, is the younger son persuades the father to split the family estate 50-50 between the two children. And Eddie the elder stays at home and goes to work the next day just like he's always done, one imagines, all his adult life. And looking at him, you and I probably couldn't have told that his net worth had just substantially increased. He was like one of those people that you might have read about who come into a fortune, but they go back to the office as normal. They don't trade up the car, their clothes, or anything. Their house, their home, their holidays stay just the same. And that was this son. It was business as normal. But as we saw last week, not so for the younger brother, who did a runner, and he lived a life of unrestrained pleasure. And his money ran out, and he ends up destitute, and he is totally broken, and he has absolutely nothing good to say about himself, and he returns home to face the music. And the music turns out to be unexpected, because it's dance music, and it's celebration time, because as the father says, we had to celebrate because you were dead and now you're alive. And then the spotlight goes onto the older brother. Now what does it say about you if when your long lost brother comes home after such a hard time, instead of being pleased, you're fuming? So much so, you can't even find it in you to go into the same room. So much so, you can't even find it in yourself to call this person your brother. You reclassify him as this son of yours. So much so that you're so angry with your father when he comes out to talk to you that all this pent-up sense of injustice and feelings and resentment just spews out and you find yourself saying all sorts of stuff you can't even believe is coming out of your mouth. What does it say about you? Plenty. And that's what we need to look at and consider. And as a sort of spoiler alert and save an awful lot of time, I can make the obvious point that the behavior of this child looks to be peculiarly pointed in the Pharisees' direction, who, as we saw, are listening with the teachers of the law to these stories that Jesus is telling. Now, outwardly, 
this stay-at-home kid looked to have got his life together, didn't he? And it looks in order, and superficially, what's not to like? He's the picture of respectability. He's got a day-to-day -day life that looks perfect, perfectly in order. No sign in him of rebellion or bolshiness or unpredictably, unpredictability. He's a hard worker, it would seem. He's dependable. And for many years now, he's proved his worth. He's been conscientious. He's been putting in the hours. He's been working on the farm. And not for him, at least outwardly, anything that would cause embarrassment. Point of fact, you might almost say he looks like the kind of son every parent wants. He's not pushing the boundaries. He's almost what you might call a compliant child. And if a younger son had not come home that day, Eddie the Elder might have gone to the grave respected. He might have been looked up to, and there might have been a eulogy at his funeral to match. But the son did come home. And then what happened? He blew it completely. The lid came off. In, for five minutes, he just couldn't contain himself. And it's amazing, the economy in which Jesus tells this parable. He hears some music and he says to himself, literally, as it says in the script, hello, what's going on? He hears the celebration, he senses the party spirit. And inside he's saying, what's up? No one told me there'd be a party. I'll just recap by reading the couple of short paragraphs. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he was back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Now, I think the standout thing that we see in the older son is this. He's got a serious heart condition. He's got a serious heart condition. Jesus tells us, and we soon find this is true in life, that out of the overflow of a heart, the mouth speaks. And what spewed out that day was a revelation. This chap has what you could call cardiosclerosis. He has a hard heart. And what comes out is his true feelings about the father. This father about whom we'll hear more next week, what the older son thinks is, you're a slave driver. All this, all this time, says the older son, I've been slaving for you. And I can imagine the father was thinking to himself, so that's what you've been doing, is it? I thought we were in a kind of family partnership. Moreover, I thought we did this out of devotion, not out of servitude. 
In point of fact, the father could have thought and goes on to say, everything I have is yours and it always has been. I didn't kill the fatted calf for you. Well, it was there for the killing and yours to kill. That wasn't the problem. The problem is you never wanted to party and you know it. What's not to like about this old son? Plenty. He's got a heart that won't celebrate. And if we prod a bit more, he's got a heart that can't celebrate. What kind of mess are you in if you can't celebrate and rejoice when people turn to Christ? Well, a big one, a big mess. There's something seriously wrong with us if that happens and we get into such a spot. And the truth is, there quite often is something wrong with us because we are in that kind of a spot more often than we like. A man who in his day drew huge congregations when he was a preacher at Westminster Chapel was a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He would preach to literally thousands every week. And in one of his sermons, he, he said this, nothing is more important than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people looking at us the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid, and that a Christian is someone who scorns delight and lives laborious days. No, we should so live that people are compelled to say, would to God I could be like that. Would to God I would live in this world and go through this world as that person does. And I find myself asking, why, why did Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching to thousands find it necessary to say those words? Because he met plenty of miserable people in church. <laughs> it's obvious. And why are so many people uh, turned away from seeking God's company? Because that's what they expect to meet when they come to church. And yet, I, I'll bet that many of our story is the opposite. The reason we were ever prepared to give Christianity a smidgen thought was because we rub shoulders with someone who just in their way they did life sort of communicated to us, they've got something I want. Is that not so? I can certainly remember that uh, it was a friend at university who, whose life was not going well. There was plenty uh, of strife and trouble and difficulty and hardship going on in her life. But there's something about the way that she navigated these waters that made me sit up and think, hey, maybe this Christianity stuff's got something going for it after all. There's something else about this old son. Not only had he lost the ability to celebrate, tragically, he's forgotten that he too is also loved. He too is just as loved as the wastrel that came home. I think it's incredibly telling that we read about the father. The father went out to him. Just the same as the father went out for the younger son. You're loved no less. It, that seems to me to be what the father is saying to this son. And I think what's happened here, maybe, is that for the older son, familiarity has bred contempt or if not contempt, at least remove the wonder of God's love. It can happen. It can happen. 
few years ago, uh, Liz and I went on a holiday, uh, and we went on a little safari somewhere in Africa. And as we went into the kind of safari park, um, some giraffes and some elephants came near to uh, the vehicle we were traveling in, and we absolutely were amazed. We took hundreds of pictures of these giraffes and these elephants. And after just a couple of days and however many hours gawking out the window, on the way out of the park, we saw some giraffes and elephants, and we thought, hey, so what? Another giraffe, another elephant. Didn't even bother getting a camera out. And it can just get like that through the familiarity of being in God's company. Or, or another kind of illustration. I remember just after 9-11, a couple of days, within a couple of days of 9-11, uh, on the radio, there were some uh, interviews with some of the people who had escaped. And obviously, they sounded extremely traumatized. People who had got out of the Twin Towers they sounded incredibly traumatized, just as you would expect them to. And I remember hearing this person being interviewed, and they said, what they said was, and you could sort of hear them shaking, I got out of that tower. I've survived. I've got to find out what the purpose of my life is. That's literally what they said. And I just wonder, as the weeks went by, and the months went by, and the years went by, I wonder if they kept to that quest. Or if life didn't just go back into kind of drift mode and the way we get used to living it. It can so easily happen. This son forgot. He, he disconnected from the love of a father whose house he was living in. And it could happen to us. And there's a third thing that we learn about his heart, which is seriously not attractive. And it's that in his heart, is envy. Now, there's a distinction we can make, I think, between jealousy and envy. Jealousy is what you feel when someone has something or they receive something and you don't have it, but you want it. And, of course, it's the basis of many novels and dramas and it undermines all sorts of relationships. So we could think of examples. It might be someone else is getting attention and... You wish you had that attention, or they get a position, they, they get prominence or promotion, or they get a place in a sports team, or they get more friends on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. And you're jealous because what they've got you want. Now that's bad enough, but envy is one step worse. Envy is when you feel that someone else has got something you haven't got, you don't want it either, but you just don't want them to have it. And that could be exactly the same. It could be position, prominence, anything like that. And that is what this younger son has in spades. It, 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 the way the story ends, as Jesus tells it, or this bit of the story ends, seems very likely that this elder son doesn't want to go into the house, doesn't want to have the joy that the younger son has. It, it's, it's envy that's driving him. And I suspect this trait is the one that would have made the Pharisees curl up inside. Because back that day when Jesus is telling a story, they're looking on and they're seeing, they're seeing the tax collectors and sinners lapping up Jesus' love. And they themselves don't want it, but they just don't want 
those people to receive it. Now, what's the antidote to this? It's very important, this, how to be happy on the inside, how to avoid being miserable on the inside. I think it's quite simple. Whenever and wherever you see God at work, rejoice and celebrate. Celebrate other people's wins. It's much harder to do this than sharing other people's sorrows. One of the commentators that I read during weeks suggested, I thought it was quite good actually, suggested that if the younger son had come back broken, weeping, and the father had given him a tough time, probably the older son would have gone out and given him a hug and said, there, there, it'll all be okay. It, it, it's, it, it's somewhat easier to come alongside sorrow, but Jesus says rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. Whenever you see God at work, celebrate. Particularly, actually, if life is dark for you at that moment. Because it will stop you from going further down the pit. It will stop you becoming cynical. It will stop your heart from hardening. And to live this kind of life takes training. It doesn't necessarily come easily. It's not got a lot to do with temperament. It's got a lot to do with learning how to do this. And I guess the Psalms are, are our textbook for that. And you could go to, say, Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's the point. Learn to celebrate. And I'm not ashamed to say, I, I want this church to be a celebratory church. I, I want us to be people who, who are filled with joy from the inside. And if people occasionally use that derisory term, you're not one of those happy, clappy churches, are you? Well, there's a lot to be happy about. Let's remember. We, we had to celebrate, said the father. We had to celebrate because this son of yours was dead. Well, mine was dead, but he's alive. God willing, we're going to see lots and lots of people come into this house and discover the love of the Father, aren't we? That's what's meant to happen. God is always extending and expanding his family. And we're going to have to rejoice that God is saving people. I love St. Michael's Church, and I'm so grateful, because when I walked in those back doors, having been a Christian for probably all of six months, I was warmly welcomed by the vicar, the then vicar, and his wife. They did everything they could to help me along. Now, had they chose to, and they never would have done this, but had they chose to, I'm absolutely sure they could have sat me down and talked me through the very many ways my life needed to change. Uh, they could have pointed out all sorts of shortcomings in my character and how immature I was, and, and I'm sure it stood out a mile to them. In fact, I blush to think about the Rupert that walked through the door, but they didn't. They didn't do any of that. They just reached out and gave me a huge welcome. I think back to my first house group leader in this church, and he never made me feel small. You know, he could, could have done so easily. He'd only got to say, let's turn to Mark chapter 5, and I would have spent five minutes trying to find Mark. And, and you know... And, and he never ticked me off when I thought I was being supremely keen and helpful and I would arrive at his house 
about 45 minutes before the beginning of a Bible study, as we used to call it in those days, because I come fresh from a city and it was much easier to go straight to him, never occurred to me that perhaps he wanted some time at home with his wife before they put their little baby to bed. He never, never rebuked me and he never made me feel awkward when I would stay on always for at least an hour after the, the, the thing had ended just to have a debrief and talk through what God might or might not have been doing and how he could do it next week. I thought I was a huge help. Now I realize, looking back, the poor couple were just longing to get to sleep and to bed. They never kicked me out. What, why am I sharing this? Because they went out of their way to welcome me. It, it wasn't totally like that there. So I'll tell you a bit of a balancing story. In those days, this church used to have pews, very dark pews. And actually, the balconies used to extend a lot further out. So they would come up to those pillars and that pillar and the back. And then it was all quite dark. And um, I made the mistake that quite often new newcomers to church make. I got to church early. Uh, you know, one minute in advance of the start is considered early, but I got to church like five minutes early. And so I walked into the church and I took a seat in, in a pew, literally in a pew, on the right-hand side, about three-quarters way back. I was minding my own business and I had my eyes shut, praying, I think. Someone tapped me on the shoulder. And uh, I, I looked around. It was a completely empty church apart from me and the person tapping me on the shoulder. And they, we became friends, actually, but that's by the grace of God. They, had very, they were wearing long white gloves, and her name was Ethel. And she said, young man, you're in my seat. It was a completely empty church. I couldn't believe it. I said, oh. <laughs> budged up a bit. Now, that wasn't quite so welcoming, was it? I got a question. It's a bit of a naughty question, but I couldn't resist it. Who had the happier life? Ethel or my house group leader? And a second question, who had the easier life? And the answer was definitely Ethel, because she didn't have to change. And all I'm saying, and she was a lovely lady, so those of you who are friends of hers and remember her, and I think there might be some, um, I'm not knocking her at all. But it's a message to all of us, because were God to bring people into his house, like the older son, you don't know who the next person's going to be. And it could be people who are going to mess up your routine no end. Because I have no doubt the younger son coming back, his life was a mess. You know, it still was a mess. He didn't wake up the next day a conformist. He was going to make life difficult. And it's true, he, he'd had squandered the family fortune, and that money wasn't coming back anytime soon. But it's worth being put out if God will save people's lives. And I, I watched a little um, BBC uh, documentary called Saved by a Stranger just recently. And the extraordinary story was told of a couple who, who lived in Elgin, Scotland. They were called Claire and Andrew Findlay. And um, back in 1992, they saw on the television that genocide was happening in Bosnia. And their hearts were moved, and they were reading about these orphaned children who, who um, faced such an unpredictable future who, whose parents were believed to have been killed. And remarkably, just absolutely remarkably, 
they decided to open their home and to take in as many children as they could. And they took in 21 Bosnian children. They didn't speak a word of their language. And, and the story unfolded in this documentary of how they actually discovered when the 21 children arrived that they weren't all orphans at all. In fact, none of them were orphans. And they were over in time, in time they were able to um, reconnect them uh, with their parents. But you, you can imagine how much their lives had to change. You can imagine. You know, literally every room in their house got turned upside down by these complete strangers. There was, there was nothing about their life that stayed the same. But now, so many years later, there was this retrospective, and one of them had died, Andrew had died, but Claire, the, the woman who owned the house, she was still alive. And as she spoke, it became clear that they were absolutely certain, obviously Andrew and Claire talked about it together, it was the best thing it had ever done in the whole of her lives. It, it was the most inconvenient for them, but they had absolutely no regrets. And we can understand why, it was quite remarkable. And I think it is a little parable within a parable, this one, that for us at St. Michael's, if we're going to get ready for the people want, God wants to bring in, that's got to be our heart. Can it be? It could be. But we, we need to encourage one another in it. Because this is what keeps me awake at night. I'm pretty sure that there are plenty of people that we know people in our address book, people whose telephone number is on our mobile phone or whatever, and they know in their hearts, they know that life isn't working out as they wanted it to. And they know in their hearts, whether, whether they're prosperous or whether they're poor, that they know that they're searching for something. But the thing that keeps them away from wanting to go into any church is they also have an idea in their heads that if they cross the threshold of a church, they're more likely to meet an older brother than encounter the love of a father. They fear that their behavior won't be good enough. They fear they'll be judged. They fear they'll be made to feel like an outsider who's squandered their lives. And that's not right, is it? That's simply not right. I'm sure that the older son wanted to say to his father, what kind of a father is it that welcomes back someone who's completely hashed up their life? And the answer is, your father. Your father. And actually, that short journey that the older son has to make, if he wants to make it, is much harder than that long journey the younger son has made. Why is it so much harder? Because there are two things going on which is hard to see in your own life, but they're lurking in all of our lives if we don't watch it. Self-righteousness and pride. In a word, this guy is just full of himself. And while you're full of yourself, then you're not celebrating with God the Father. Self-righteousness, I suppose we'd use the word self-reliance. It doesn't work in the kingdom of God. There's only one way to that banqueting table. And those of us who are celebrating know we've made the journey and make the journey. It is accepting God's love on his terms. Making the same speech 
that that terror Wei Sun had to make. And it's a free gift. And yet it's true. In, in one way, in our kind of worksy economy, we find it so challenging to get our heads around. It was a free gift to the tearaway son. And it's a free gift to that hard-hearted older son too. But will you take it? Free gifts just don't come along too often. That's why we're so cynical, isn't it? Uh, I had a car crash in 1979. And the car ended up upside down on the hard shoulder of the M4. And um, I don't know how, it's extraordinary, but I got out of that car, upside down as it was, alive and kicking. And a complete stranger to me stopped his car, and I actually walked up to his car, and he, he looked so shocked, he was white as a sheet. And he said, I saw everything. And the next thing he said was, I will take you home. Where do you live? And that was a free gift. He didn't have a clue. It's often struck me. He didn't have a clue if I lived in Edinburgh or in Slough, just down the road. <laughs> but he didn't care. He just said, I'll take you home. Where do you live? And there was only one way of accepting that. It was just to say, thank you. And, and it's like, I want anyone who comes into this church to hear the father saying, I will take you home. Come and live here. You're home here. That's what you want too, isn't it? And then we'll be celebrating, celebrating, celebrating. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that Jesus has this extraordinary knack of telling hard things in a way that we can hear it and want to change. And thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just let the Pharisees get away with it that day, but in a sense you brought to light what was going on in their hearts with the prospect of change. And I want to say to you, Lord, forgive me for times when I've decided who you should bring in your kingdom and not seen the ones you wanted to bring in. And I pray that you'd make my heart and our hearts just open for all that you want to do. We, we just remind ourselves, Lord, this is your church, not our church. We live to do your bidding, not to please ourselves. And we pray by your Holy Spirit that we might be thrilled to bits every time we see and hear people coming to know you afresh. Please, Lord, don't allow our hearts to get callous and hard. Don't allow that kind of cynicism to invade us. We need your help that we might become really warm and welcoming to anyone and everyone that you want to welcome here. And we know, we just know, Lord, that if your love shines, when your mercy flows, when your spirit is let loose and people see you as you really are, then we have to celebrate. And we ask that would happen every day. In Jesus' name, amen.